As you all know, Art and I are big supporters of organics, so we are really excited to say that this episode of Well and Good is brought to you by Series Organics. They have a really wide range of certified organic products, chemical-free and with no genetic modification at all, ensuring a healthy future for you, your families and the planet. Hey guys. Hey, so I'd like to start this intro off with two different points. The first point is that if you can hear a snuffling sort of sound. Or growling. Or a growling, uh, that's our little baby Milo in the background. He's currently pulling all the books off the bookshelf, so that's fun. And the second thing is that, can we just discuss how much we love Georgia. And we love her so much. Oh my God, she's so incredible. So Georgia Vavasar is our guest today. She's a Vedic meditation teacher and um, Ayurvedic lifestyle consultant. And she actually taught Art and I Vedic meditation a few months ago and we can't recommend it enough. And our chat today was fascinating to say the least. Mm, Yep, it really was. We talk all about what Vedic meditation is, um, how to do it, how it differs from other forms of meditation. Uh, We talked a bit about the physiological benefits of it, Mm. how it can be even more restorative than sleep. Yeah, and it's actually, her backstory is really interesting as to how she got into meditation because she's she's definitely not like a dreadlocked, sort of like, you know, hemp-wearing sort of person. She's... She's very, very much like not, a, that the, not that we have anything against nothing against dreadlocked wearing people. people. That's completely fine and you know normal. If that, that's fine. In if fact, that's what you want to do. Let's go. We've let's got some it. hemp clothing. <laughs> um, but she was one of those people that was really like A type, high stress, um, go 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 go, and she actually got cancer um, and a whole different kind of host of health issues. So she, she she talks a lot about that and how she found meditation through that and how it um, saved her. So there's a lot we discuss. And also the, the importance of uh, meditation for mums and pregnant women. Um, she goes really in-depth about that. She's really passionate about that. So you guys are going to love this one. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Georgia. Thanks. It's great to be here. You drive all the way up here to Walkworth, so we really appreciate your time. Ah, beautiful drive. You are a Vedic meditation teacher, uh, and we've, I mean, Maddie and I did a meditation course with you a few months ago, and we've been practicing since, and we thought it'd be really good to get you on the podcast just to have a chat about what Vedic meditation is, how yeah. it differs from other meditation, um, and just go from there. So let's let's start with that. Yeah. Well, uh, Vedic meditation is different to most styles of meditation in the sense that most techniques of meditation are getting you to focus or concentrate on something or perhaps contemplate something. So you get these focused concentrative or contemplative techniques. Uh, Focusing and concentrating might be, you know, focusing on your breath or your thoughts or even perhaps uh, a mantra that, that you've been given. Contemplating might be contemplating an idea like perfect health or love and kindness or something like that. And so what happens in the mind and and correspondingly in the body is that when we're focusing or concentrating, 
it's calming to the mind. It directs the mind into that one-pointed focus or concentration, but it's still actively engaged. It's still doing something. With Vedic meditation, we use an effortless style of meditation, and we use a particular type of mantra. Mantra actually means mind vehicle. Man means mind and tra means vehicle in Sanskrit. So it's literally a mind taxi. So it's a mind taxi, a primordial sound that you're thinking on the inside. And you think it in a particular way and the the particular group of mantras that we use, again, are different to mantras that you might hear at yoga. You know, you might hear om, uh, you might be familiar with some other mantras in those arenas, but this is a specific group that has a particular primary property, which is that when they're thought in a particular way, they start to self-refine and become vaguer and fainter and softer, and they feel like they want to slip away in your awareness. And this becomes very attractive to the mind. The mind is drawn into that mind taxi and it takes your mind from the level of awareness of that active, focused, concentrative level into subtler and subtler and subtler levels until ultimately you experience a place deep within your consciousness, which um, is a place of serene inner contentedness. might be described as pure consciousness, being, or in scientific terms, the unified field, that deep uh inner serene contentedness is the deepest layer within our awareness. And so because we step beyond the active thinking layer and beyond even the subtlest of the subtle, it has a profound effect physiologically and also on our awareness. We're experiencing the source of true fulfillment inside. Uh, So this is kind of why you want to do it. Why do you want to spend time meditating? You know, what's the point of that? Um, It sounds good. We just want to tick that meditation box, but what are the actual effects and why do we want to prioritize that is because, you know, every teacher will tell you that happiness is on the inside. But for most people, the experience is not necessarily that. We're kind of like, yeah, I'm happy, but first I need to do this, this, and this, and then I'll get there. And then once I do that or get that or achieve that, then I'll be happy. And it sort of places this idea and expectation that happiness is on the inside, on the outside. And this was just, you know, for me, my experience of life, I didn't even realize that that's what I was doing. But constantly seeking it outside means that, you know, it's a very unstable form of happiness if we do get that thing it's this temporary wave before the mind almost immediately (laughs) starts conceiving of a better option by the time you've even gotten home yeah yeah. you've booked the flight to bali but before you even get there let's book another holiday because what are we going to do when we get back when there's that dip of like oh now the holiday's over Mm. now what i need the next thing we have one child and then we want you know the child to be better at this or we want a second child we get the house let's renovate you know and it's just the constant these are there's nothing wrong with these things but if we're looking for them as source of happiness we're going to be disappointed and i think you know i remember having this sort of experience um in the years before meditating the many years before learning meditation which was that I felt kind of regularly disappointed with my experience of life and I don't know if I really knew what it was I constantly felt like this should feel better why doesn't this feel why am I not getting the big wave of happiness that I thought I was going to get from this thing or it's just so surprisingly short-lived you can achieve the greatest thing of all time and almost immediately there's a drop after that because it's a peak experience that's what it's for but if we're living only in the peaks then what happens is there's troughs and so the trough then takes us down and we have this unstable sort of up and down experience whereas knowing and 
knowing is one thing, but regularly experiencing the source of inner fulfillment is a whole nother experience. So if we take our mind and we we direct it inside, so we're like, okay, it's on the inside, but where is it? I'm not experiencing that. We need a little mind taxi to literally taxi the mind down to that deep layer, which is that layer of serene inner contentedness or fulfillment inside. And if we're meditating regularly, then we're going to experience it regularly and habituate our awareness to experience it outside of meditation. This is the point of meditation for me, at least, and certainly for within the, the tradition and practice I teach is that it's not about having, you know, a restful 10 or 20 minutes or some wonderful experience during that time, though you certainly will from time to time, but it's about what is the transformation that's occurring outside of that? That's the point of it. There's no point doing it if the rest of your day you're still the same stress bag that you were before. <laughs> uh, so to awaken that layer of your own awareness, to awaken to that, it's already there. We just need to more regularly experience it. Then what meditators will describe is that that inner fulfillment is starting to seep into daily life. And you might say baseline happiness goes up. And that obviously feels very good. And, you know, we can all do with being a little bit more happy, more happy and also more stable in our experience. It's the inner stability that having that inner layer of fulfillment awakened brings. So when things like, oh, a global pandemic arrive, (laughs) (laughs) we're not so caught up in that surface fear layer at the top of the, you know, at the top of our experience, which is, oh, what could happen here and there? And there might be flavors of that, but there's also the stabilizing layer of that deep, serene inner contentedness that's there along with it. So it brings that inner stability, which means that we can continue to respond and behave in a higher way. We can remain interactive and adaptive. Oh, okay, well, we're going to spend a month at home. What are we going to do with that time? Oh, okay, now, you know, I'm at home working and so is my husband. We've got two kids. We're going to need to adapt quite a lot in this situation. How much adaptation energy do we have for this? And again, one of the things that meditation provides is huge increase in adaptation energy. So Hans Selye, who's the father of stress research and was the first to coin the term stress in relation to humans, before that it was an engineering term, talked about the concept of adaptation energy, where essentially we wake up each day with a certain amount of adaptation energy. And all mums know, and dads as well, um, that, you know, once you have a child and you're not getting a lot of sleep, adaptation energy is at an all-time low. (laughs) You know, sleep is one of the the feeders into the adaptation energy tank. Uh, And so we we wake up with a certain amount, which means that the more demands that we have, if we respond interactively with them, because we've got enough adaptation energy, we're like, okay, yes, changing expectations here. I'll just change and do that now. Oh, okay, email from the boss. They've moved the deadline forward by a week. Interesting. We're going to have to, you know, do this and that and call a few people and make a few changes. But by the afternoon, the tank might be empty. Could be even by 11 o'clock. You know, you've been cut off in traffic and suddenly, you know, you're swearing and railing at the other drivers. But if the adaptation energy tank is very full, then we've got a lot more adaptation energy to respond and adapt to what are changes and expectations. I mean, essentially... There are no stressful events. Stress is a response to uh, a demand or a change in expectations. One person may become very stressed by a certain demand where another person just sort of interacts with it and moves on. What is the difference there? The amount of adaptation energy that person has. If there's a huge accumulation of stress over a lifetime, then adaptation energy is already low. If we're not getting great sleep, 
we're not getting there's not much adaptation energy in the tank and so in order for us to interactively and adaptively and creatively respond to these changes that we ha- we're facing hour by hour, minute by minute, any expectation we have <laughs> suddenly can be changing. Um, anyone that had any plan for this year <laughs> has completely gone out the yeah. window. <laughs> you know, you thought you were going to do all of these things, you're going to this country, visiting these people, had all these work plans, absolutely gone. What your finances were going to look like, completely changed. God, this you is know. like the year of adaptability, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is really showing us how mm. much adaptability and creativity can we respond with or what is, you know, what is our lack of that? And what do we maybe need to do about that to bring about more of a stable, creative, adaptive experience in life? So meditation boosts this adaptation energy by huge amounts. And so we find that we're able to increasingly over time, and meditation is a cumulative practice. It's not something that sometimes people think, well, I'll just meditate on the day that I'm stressed. But what we want to do is because it's creating an experience a state of consciousness outside of meditation we want to build that adaptive stable state of consciousness of awareness outside of meditation over time so that when these things happen we're naturally responding and behaving in that way rather than kind of trying to back backtrack by sort of you know dropping a meditation in that day which isn't going to have the same effect as that cumulative regular consistent experience so um you know increasingly over time we find that you know with that regular practice of meditation we were releasing accumulated stress and we're enlivening that that fulfillment factor um that layer of awareness that gives us that stability uh then we find we can more creatively adaptively respond and it adaptation energy is boosted every time we meditate so even you know if you're meditating say a couple of times a day by the afternoon evening if that adaptation energy is at an all-time low and we're starting to feel fatigued we've got foggy thinking we're like oh i just can't function unless i have a coffee or how am i going to get through the rest of the day then we've got this thing that can just boost the adaptation energy back up. So for those reasons and also physiologically, I mean, there's a lot of science now about the physiological benefits, but the difference with Vedic meditation is that it rests the body deeper than sleep. It's been shown uh, through studies done on transcendental meditation, which can be likened to this technique because it's transcendental technique, uh, is that the body will be resting two to five times deeper than sleep, even in a new meditator when practicing Vedic meditation because of the mind going to those deeper, subtler regions in the awareness when you when you meditate. And most meditators that learn this technique, one of the things they'll say is, I'm so surprised how deep it felt even in the first meditation. You might not have done any meditation before and you feel very deep and you're like, wow, I was stressed on the way here. How am I feeling? This is so surprising. And it's that depth that allows the body to be in that deep state of rest. The mind and body are intrinsically linked. They're one contiguous vehicle. So when we take the mind to that deep layer, then we trigger the corresponding rest state in the body, which allows it to switch on all of its healing systems, its innate healing systems, to boost the immune system, to you know rebalance whatever might be out of balance it, through its own innate healing intelligence, and also dissolve and release stress at an accelerated rate. So that is kind of the the overall picture of Vedic meditation. Um, and it's it kind of puts a lot of the meditation stereotypes to the side in the sense that it's completely effortless. So it's not it's not difficult in any way. You don't need to be Zen already, you know, very calm to learn to meditate. Um, most people I teach are 
stressed, mildly stressed to very stressed, (laughs) you know, which is just the state of the general populace, let's be fair, you know, and I was too when I learned this. Um, You know, I struggled to sit still, you know, I was sort of jumping around, even, you know, keeping my eyes closed for a couple of minutes at the end of practice to kind of give you an integration time. I was like, oh, has it been one minute? Has it been two minutes? Couldn't lie down for the five-minute Shavasana yoga, you know, the classic like, oh, I just need to get up and go, which is, of course, stress, right? It's accumulation Mm. of stress. And so meditation is for stressed people, you know, it's for all people, but, you know, we need to be able to practice the technique when we're stressed or we're just not going to do it. So it doesn't need to be, you don't need to be sitting in an uncomfortable position, cross-legged or anything like that, comfortably sitting upright, back supported, quietly thinking uh, the sound on the inside. That's really all it is. It's it's mental resting technology. So, Mm. Yeah. That was the best overview I could have ever imagined. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. And so many questions I've got just Good. about what you yeah. what you were talking about. Yeah. But maybe we'll just take it back for starters and mm. um, to your life pre-meditation mm. and how you got into it. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> if you ask my friends, <laughs> would be one of the last people that <laughs> they would have ever even said would start meditating, let alone become a meditation teacher. Why is that? Um Because I was your classic, you know, type A, jacked up, stressed. I mean, I at the time I thought that was normal and I'm sure everyone else around me thought it was semi-normal as well. Um, But, you know, partying, you know, I went to university to party. I don't recommend that to anyone. (laughs) I think a lot of people have done that. That's what I did um, and I had a great time. Uh, But also I was, you know, I had a lot of stress in the system, um, you know, from a young age, I remember being, well, I remember being depressed from three years old. So that's kind of, I guess, a little bit unusual for most people. Had a lot of sort of stress and anxiety, lots of health issues along the way, um, you know, digestive disorders, chronic fatigue, things like that. And depression probably lingering in there in the background all the time. With, you yeah. say you were depressed from age three. Yeah. How, how did you know that? Is it like now when you look back on that, you kind of realize that you were depressed or? I was just what? very sad all the time. You know, yeah. it's unusual for a child to be sad all the time. I mean, I say unusual. We hope it's unusual. Um, mm. But yeah, you know, all the time like that, probably not. Um, and yeah, I think I saw my first counselor at 10. So that's sort of an indication that something's not quite going mm. along. A, you know, yeah. happy. I wasn't a happy go lucky child. I was very serious, very sad. And yeah. So um, then I, you know, wanted to break out and party and get my happiness from substances and, um, you know, these things that we think are going to make us feel better. And they do if we feel really bad. Because we're like, oh, well, maybe a bit of know, an escape bit of escapism that, you know, essentially they are the um, synthetic versions of our own innate bliss chemistry. And so if our own innate bliss chemistry is not being produced um, because it's been dampened through stress or overload of experience as a child or, you know, it can go back to even um, in utero, really that's when our experience starts. We start downloading the experience that, you know, our mother is having. Um, All of those things contribute to then, you know, a dampening of the, the body's own innate system to produce that bliss chemistry. And when I say bliss chemistry, people are like, what is that? You know, do we, am I producing? Producing that 
chemicals like serotonin, dopamine, GABA, endorphins, they are associated with with feelings of security, trust, oxytocin, the bonding molecule, serotonin, the feeling of confidence comes from serotonin, that lifting of mood, all of those things. That's actually our natural state is that, you know, we should be naturally running that bliss chemistry. We could say stay and play chemistry as opposed to fight and flight, fight or flight. And so when we get more into the sustained experience of even low level fight or flight or extreme level of fight or flight, then... we're dampening the body's ability to produce those chemicals. So then we take a synthetic version of it and, yeah, it feels good. It feels like, well, I should feel like this all the time because innately we sort of know that. But then the problem with it is that you're exporting that experience to an external substance which actually has a damaging effect on the body versus the body producing it naturally. Um, So, yeah, I got into all of those things. I had a great time at university. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I went to that many lectures. I think I recall getting a letter about how I better start attending or they weren't going to pass me. Um, (laughs) What were you studying? I was studying French and theatre art, you know, things that were um, very fun and interesting. (laughs) Not sure where they've been used, but um, it's still a very fun time of of your journey. Yeah, Yeah. a very important part of my, you know, ultimate meditation. (laughs) 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 Um, And then, yeah, I moved to Australia and got um, into, I worked in insurance for 12 years in Australia and London. And um, I got to a point where I got cancer. I think that was probably the big easily definable turning point. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, which was, I was 32 then, I think. So 32, I had, by that point I'd got divorced as well. So I'd been through a divorce, which was, you know, emotional, but I'd moved on from that. And then um, got cancer, bowel cancer, which was a surprise to really anyone that gets cancer is a surprise. But, you know, people were pretty shocked because I was so young. I remember even in the... uh, (laughs) In the hospital, when the nurse came in after I had my surgery, one of them was like, but you're so young. You know? <laughs> I was like, thanks, you're not helping. Because everyone else was sort of in their 80s, 60s, yeah. 70s, 80s. She's like shocked when she saw yeah. me in the bed. Uh, so that was a defining, you know, pivotal point in my life, and it triggered – was a really amazing experience, actually. I'm, I'm very grateful that I had it uh, because it really triggered – a lot of uh, perspective shift for me and I started to, I had a lot of time on my hands. I stopped working for a year while I did the chemo and the surgeries. Um, They ended up being two or three surgeries, I think, and in that time. And I started to, you know, anyone that gets cancer is going to have a look at life. (laughs) And I started to have this experience partly through, I think, having a lot more space in my day. I wasn't working. I had to go to, you know, chemo now and again. But in between that, I was kind of resting. And I was living in Bondi at the time in Sydney, uh, one of the lovely beaches over there and walking the beach when I could and sitting in the sun. And I started to have this experience of a deep, in a contentedness, um, which I now look back on as sort of glimpses of the stabilized state that is possible over time if you have a way to stabilize it, which was an unusual experience. I think I wasn't expecting to feel that or experience it while going through all of that stuff. But, you know, when things get really rough on the surface, one of the 
responses that we can have uh, is that we dig deep within ourselves. And so it was just so rough on the body level of um, experience that, you know, I started to, I think my awareness just started dropping into that deeper layer within that I didn't really know was there. You know, I was like, oh, okay, you know. And, and feeling kind of good. Part, part of just taking a break for the first time. And, and it sounds like it took something so huge like cancer to actually make you stop and just kind of have time to, to go inward and think and, you know, relax a little bit. Yeah, time and space is so important. And I think from people just having that short experience of it through lockdown, those that had more time, some didn't because they were <laughs> working with kids and things, but some people had more space or at least more space with their family able to drop into that um, more relaxed state, which just naturally feels better. Um, And I started to realise that I was feeling this sort of level of contentment, even though I was doing chemo a few times a week and all of these things. And so um, it triggered a lot of shifts for me and I saw life in a different way. And I went back to insurance at the end of that year and got back into that. I was excited to be sort of back in life because I felt like it had been kind of on pause, though we can't really ever pause. And in fact, very important things were happening in that time. Um, so, so at this point, were you cleared of cancer? Yeah. I mean, essentially, uh, yeah, sort of by a year later, they need to kind of wait until you've had the test there. But yeah, they were able to cut it all out and, you know, blast or whatever the <laughs> rest of it was there away. Um, so essentially, I think, you know, the the prognosis was good. Um, and they caught it quite early as stage two. So I was kind of lucky from that perspective. And then, yeah, I got back into work and got busy again, started flying all over the country. And I was a national <clears throat> manager, so there was a lot of travel involved. And I started to that feeling that I'd had started to slip away in the face of, you know, normal busy life and demands. And I started to feel sensations of stress in my body again, tension in the shoulders starting to creep back in and just the, all those feelings were rising back up. And I kind of, that was had been my normal before, so I was just back in that. And then I got sick again with something else a year later and I needed another surgery. And so... During that time, I had a couple of months off work again, which was, I was like, okay, we need to look at what, you know, what lessons I haven't embedded during the cancer time. And they would have said it was an unavoidable thing. It was a a bowel obstruction caused by scar tissue um, buildup. But I always like to sort of look at the wider reasons of why things are happening and you start to question these things lots of time on your hands and I started to get into a suffering mindset again of kind of well I'm 32 I'm single I'm sick again you know my friends are just talking about whether they're having a boy or a girl this time (laughs) I'm like this kind of thinking about other things yeah Yeah. and I'm here you know and I was like "Mm, I think I need to do something about this so you know that was the time where I thought for some reason, I don't know why I thought meditation might help. I didn't actually know anyone that was meditating or that had told me they were meditating um, at the time. But I Googled meditation and I went along to a couple of other evenings. I think I went to a Buddhist class once and I found it very hard to do. I found it difficult to sit and it felt very long and I found it kind of boring. And I think us probably, you know, when you're stressed, it's hard to sit there like that. And so that just wasn't the technique for me. And then I ended up at a talk about Vedic meditation and ended up learning that. And very rapidly, it started to change a lot of things for me. And so, you know, after a period of time, yeah, I decided that I wanted to go and bring that 
transformation to others. And so I went to train as a teacher of it. Mm. That's so cool. Wow. So, so then you went to India and you, um, you learnt under Tom Knowles, is that right? Yes. So um, Tom Knowles is my master. He's the um, pre- considered the preeminent uh, Vedic master worldwide, and uh, he the the teacher training for Vedic meditation is very rigorous. <laughs> it's notoriously rigorous. Um, how how so? Well. You need to be practicing for for about two years before you can apply. Um, I had been practicing for less than that. Uh, I kind of was a bit of an exception, but I'd been through some other things that had prepared me well for uh, that training. And there, it's about three thousand hours in total of training, so very very extensive. There's a wow. number of prerequisite courses that you need to do before you can even attend the teacher training, and then the training itself is three months intensive, full time. Very very, uh, it's almost. You know, at times it's almost, you know, round the clock. Um, lots of intensive meditation, lots of learning, um, and you're just being stretched in every direction. Uh, so the point really is to not just to kind of <laughs> make it this morbid exercise, mm. <laughs> but um, to stretch your adaptation adaptability and your capability and also to produce the state of consciousness um, that will make you um, the best teacher and exponent of that knowledge so that, you know, it's not about, well, anyone could, you know, teach people how to meditate, but that knowledge when it's coming through someone who is in that state is very different. It's received in a different way. And it's really about that teacher living it and being that state rather than just kind of handing out, you know, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but handing out certificates and, you know, we've sat down and learned this. It's like, but who are you, you know? Mm. Um, so it's more about that, which is why it's, you know, there's very few teachers trained a year and it's quite an extensive process to be accepted and, and be trained. And then it produces expert meditation teachers where they really have um, – all teachers of Vedic meditation that have been trained in that way by Tom, at least, is the only training that I can comment on, um, have that full extensive range of knowledge, deep knowledge about everything that's happening in meditation. It's actually, there's a lot to it, a lot more to it than than people realise. But when you get trained in that way, you, you gain that full understanding of your own practice, which... You know, most people are meditating at home just wondering most of the time if they're even doing it right (laughs) or they're (laughs) meditating. The main thought they're having is, am I even meditating, Mm. you know, Mm. which goes away when you've had that, you know, full training in the understanding of every little thing that you're feeling and why. Yeah. Mm. I thought, yeah, or um, I used to get thoughts. (laughs) I used to be like, oh, my God, I think I was just meditating just now. (laughs) And then, you know, that thought just throws me out of a meditative zone, you know. Whoa, why was this really deep? Now I'm not. Whoa, why was this really deep? Now I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because I really liked the way that you kind of, um, well, come across the whole, like, Vedic style and how because you get your um, mantra and mm. you you kind of say that effortlessly in your head, mm. but for for quite a while I found that I was really focusing on like, am I putting an effort to to this or <laughs> like is this effortless or am I thinking it too much or or like am I not thinking it enough or and then I just start really thinking about it, but that has slowly started to slip away. Now it's just kind of in in the background. Sometimes it's not there and I don't worry about it too much. Um, But I think it's kind of natural for the human mind to just always wonder if we're doing a good job at something. Yes. Like, like, is this the the way that I'm supposed to do it? Like, is this how other people do it? Is this normal? I don't know. Yeah. And I think having that reassurance, 
assurance um, that, you know, where your practice is verified and validated. So that's kind of what you get when you learn in person with someone, um, mm. With, mm. A, with a qualified teacher, is that they can tell you, you know, you start meditating at home once a day and then once in the group or in the course and then you're like, okay, this is what happened at home. Is that okay? What about this? There were thoughts. Understanding the nature of thoughts is a big part of the course, why they're there, where they're coming from, and how to be effortless because actually – not many people know how to be effortless. <laughs> We're trained to use effort all the time. So mm. it's refining that process back into the easiness. And then it just feels so good and you start to be more effortless in other areas of your life. Like everything can um, doesn't need to be hard, you know. It can still be – you can still be productive and effective but relaxed at the same time. Mm. It's a very good feeling. Mm. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Here's a quick message from our sponsors, Series Organics. Short on time, maybe you're looking to swap out meat for more plant-based options? Introducing new jackfruit meals from Series Organics with three delicious flavours, barbecue, Mexican and Thai. You've hit the easy plant-based meal jackpot. Yep, it really is a jackpot and they're incredibly quick and easy to heat up and you can just add them to whatever creation you like. Put them on your nachos, throw them in a taco, put them on some loaded fries, have them on rice, maybe in a burger, even a salad. Gluten-free and vegan, made with pure, wholesome ingredients. So if you're wondering what jackfruit is all about, jackfruit is a sustainable crop and has a similar texture to shredded meat, which makes it a really versatile plant-based meal. So ask for them at your local supermarket, health food store, or check them out at www.series.co.nz. That's C-E-R-E-S.co.nz. You mentioned that um, about learning from an actual teacher in person mm. and that's definitely something that I've experienced as well I mean I started mm. learning meditation through apps through mm. different apps um, Headspace which is kind of uh, Insight Timer yep Insight Timer and I do use Insight Timer from time to time actually for a little bit of guided meditation when I feel like I want that um, sometimes it's just nice to have nice words in mm. your ear mm. you know what I mean yeah. it sometimes just makes you feel nice yeah and then and like and one giant uh, one giant mind wait one giant mind yeah one giant mind which is like mm. a um, Vedic meditation app as well but I found we've done a we've done a Buddhist medita- meditation course mm. and then also then subsequent to that our course with you and it's mm. so much different mm. doing a course in person and what I've been able to get out of it is just huge and it's like actually changed my whole outlook on meditation and made me really want to do it and <laughs> my whole practice has really come together a lot more I think mm. since that mm. Mm. one thing I want to know though is what is the difference between transcendental meditation and Vedic meditation how do they relate to each other yeah I mean my teacher Tom trained uh, as part of the transcendental meditation organization he was taught by Maharshi Mahesh Yogi he's one of the great masters of the Vedic lineage and he brought uh, transcendental meditation to the west and Tom spent many years with him I think I believe about 25 years many of those years as his um, personal assistant and then he at some point became independent and since then has been teaching Vedic meditation as it is now. So it comes from the same tradition, but, you know, essentially uh, Vedic meditation doesn't have the the trademark logo or the business organization. We don't have any organizational structure. We're all independent teachers, but that teach still in the way that um, very purely, um, the emphasis is on that, certainly very purely in the way that 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 technique has always been taught. So that Vedic tradition is over 5,000 years old. Uh, It's very ancient. Wow. Yeah. And so 
Vedic, that's short for Ayurvedic, or is it separate to Ayurvedic? Yeah, so uh, Vedic means of the Veda. So the Veda is a body of knowledge that is not Indian in nature. It was preserved in India, but it really describes the mechanics of consciousness, of uh, really our entire universe and existence, a huge body of knowledge that, um, you know, quantum mechanics, quantum physics is starting to ratify uh, the concepts that were discussed and or raised in that body of knowledge, that body of wisdom that was essentially heard uh, by great masters who were meditating not because they were stressed, <laughs> but because they wanted to understand the nature of the universe and of their own existence. And so they were in very high states of consciousness where their awareness was at one with the universe itself. And in that state, um, they were able to detect the impulses of cosmic intent, the sounds that nature makes, that the universe makes actually, you know, at that subtle level. And so those sounds became this oral tradition uh, known as the Veda. And it was passed down through families for thousands of years orally. They would memorize the whole thing orally. So anything now that is read, Vedic texts, etc., is a written record of the original oral tradition, which went back at least, we're not really sure, but at least 5,000 years, probably more. Wow. So within that body of wisdom comes all the branches of yoga um, that we know of, and also Ayurveda, which is a body of wisdom about uh, health and longevity, how to uh, maintain and promote optimal health and have the body in that state that where it's in harmony with nature, which uh, is about longevity. What we really want is the longest period of life in the body where we feel good, we feel blissful in the body. So it's less about certainly, um, less about, you know, how you look or how healthy you're going to be for a period of time, but maintaining that overall health that's going to see you right through to a healthy, active, uh, engaged and blissful in the body and in the mind. It's about balancing the body and mind as well. It's a very holistic uh, look at things. So, yeah, so it means of the Veda. So mm-hmm. it comes from that particular body of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Right. God, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. are you are you an Ayurvedic um uh, lifestyle consultant? I've well? done a little bit of training in Ayurveda. Yeah. Uh, so it's not strictly part of our training, but, mm. you know, we learn so much about the Veda and the Vedic wisdom as part of our training of those, you know, 3,000 hours in a couple of years and build up to becoming a teacher that you end up absorbing a lot of knowledge. I've also done um, an Ayurvedic chef training here, mm. which covers a lot of the Ayurvedic fundamentals as well. So Yeah, because okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Well, yeah, I wanted to know like so you know it's all about whole holistic you know health of the whole entire body mm. so when so then what does that encompass and what are you kind of helping to for people to work through obviously you did, did that chef um training so yes. some nutrition comes into it and food comes into it yeah so from all aspects from what time you go to bed you know the cycles of nature which we've just moved away from so much which is where modern life really puts us under so much pressure and demand um you know sometimes often when people come and they um come along to one of my introductory talks you know they feel that they're not stressed but um, I'm sort of yet to meet someone that I would, in general, uh, apart from some of the, you know, maybe my colleagues and some of the um, great masters that I've been lucky enough to spend time with that I would consider is not stressed. So, you know, we've sort of normalized it now, this uh, this stress, these kind of um, 
the low level fight or flight that most people are kind of living at that in a sustained way and so that's the impact of modern life is what's doing it is partly there's multitude of factors but just the pace the demands that we put on ourselves that society puts on us and so one day in our life has been likened to what our ancestors experienced over a year just in terms of the visual and sensory stimulus the pace the phones the technology the wi-fi all of these things the body has to process and again with um, the advent of electricity and things like that we can stay up later we can be on our laptop till 11 12 at night watch netflix yeah and do all just yeah. constantly you know exposed to artificial stimulus. light the artificial light and in, in the eyes and then the getting outside less so we're not outside as much our feet are not touching the earth and the sun coming in the eyes because we're indoors and we're busy working and then suddenly at six o'clock and the sun's gone down and you know we haven't been outside you know that has obviously has an impact on the physiology so understanding even the cycles of nature which is that if we go to bed uh, again this is what part of the Ayurvedic wisdom is if we go to bed by 10 o'clock at night then we end up much more likely to get to sleep and have a restful sleep it's even western um, science has come around to the fact that that 10 to 2 period is the ultimate healing period so if we're asleep by then um, we will be able to give the body the best chance at healing and rejuvenating itself the detoxification processes happen at that time if we're awake at that time so there is an energy essentially it's associated with different elements so up until between 6 and 10 p.m there is an energy that's more associated with the earth element so that earthy grounded feeling helps us get to sleep better we're more likely to go to sleep and then what happens is the fire the fire predominantly fire element starts up it's known as pitta in ayurveda between um 10 and 2 and so if we're awake we get you'll notice you get that second wind you're like suddenly i know for me if i go to bed sort of any time after 10 30 I get the second wind, I start to become quite wakeful, my mind and mental processes start to go up, which is again associated with pitta, and I start to, I might even get a bit hungry, I'm like, oh, I feel like I, I need a snack, you know, it's like at 11 o'clock, why do I want to eat now? It's because the pitta is also associated with the digestive fire, it's that fire element starts to wake up, and this is why we experience all of those things. It's also associated with metabolic process, so if we're asleep during that time, the metabolic processes start to happen in a very optimized and harmonized way. So we start to digest food better. We start to get into detoxification of the system. All of those things are happening. So if we go to sleep before that time, then we tend to you know, optimize our overall health and sleep. And then if we wake up before 6 a.m., the period of 2 to 6 a.m. is known as vata time and vata brings with it a lot of creativity and energy and dynamism and so you'll notice if you get up before six you tend to feel more active and creative and energized even if you've had the same number of hours of sleep versus if you got it at eight and you'd still had eight hours you feel a bit sluggish and you're a bit like oh I feel a bit sort of fatigued and you know I need a coffee a lot more than you do if you're up at 6 a.m and so understanding even the rhythms of nature for example that's one of the <clears throat> one of the great pieces of wisdom in Ayurveda it's little subtle shifts like that can actually make a big difference if we were living 
in alignment with our own deeper nature, which is at one with all of this. You know, science will tell us quantum mechanics, quantum physics will tell us we are at the deepest level of all form and phenomena, all matter is energy, a field of energy, which is the one ocean of consciousness, we could say. So we're all, we are all unified at that level. If we were more living in tune with that, we would naturally feel to be going to bed earlier. We would naturally be uh, noticing the rhythms of the sun and just aware of it spontaneously. Oh, it feels like now the best thing for me is to, you know, put the laptop away and have some rest time or something like that. But when the more we move away from that, the more we're likely to get out of balance. And then it triggers a cascade of effects in the body and mind. And mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... That's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It also um, makes me think... That it reminds me of something that Dr. Libby said as well, where she said that um, if you, yeah, going to bed, uh, trying to get to sleep around about 11 o'clock, uh, yeah, sometimes you spike. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder and you feel more awake. And I definitely find that myself. Like I I make a real effort to make sure I'm asleep by 10 o'clock because I know that if, I, if I'm awake 10.30, close to 11, then I find it really difficult to get to sleep. And sometimes I'll even maybe fall asleep reading my book or something at say 9.30 and then Matt you'll still be reading a book or something mm. and then you'll turn the light off roll over or something at say 10.30 and it'll like I'm a very light sleeper and so it'll wake <laughs> me up and I can't get to sleep for like an hour or so I, oh, it really does my head sorry in. about that yeah, but, that, <laughs> but the, I mean hey that kind of that kind of explains it a little bit yeah you talked about the period of time between 6 and 10 p.m. that's kind of like the earthing grounding period mm. does that mean that you'd be um it could be quite beneficial to do something out in nature or something that grounds you to help you sleep. Yeah, well, taking it easy during that time, you know, I think traditionally we might have, you know, been sitting around talking with family or reading or something like that versus getting on the laptop and working, um, you know, till late at night or, um yeah, whatever else we might be tempted, the phones and the lights and things like that, they're spiking that energy that keeps us awake, essentially, because they need to, they actually flash many, many, many times very quickly to keep the screen up and glowing like that. So what we're seeing is this flashing light, which is, again, contributing to attention spans and also keeping the stimulation going as well as the light itself it's the the actual flashing so you know again we might have had a dinner early around about sunset sunset time is the ideal time to kind of be having the last meal of the day because again our another element that ayurveda talks about is that our digestive fire is mirrored by the sun, the great big ball of fire. Also, that ball of fire within us, Agni is called in Sanskrit and Ayurveda is the digestive fire. It moves with the sun. So as the sun is coming up, so does digestion rise. As the sun is at its zenith in the middle of the day, digestion is strongest midday. So ideally having lunch, you know, kind of between 10 and 2 at 12 would be optimal. And then as the sun's going down, so is our digestive fire, digestive fire plummeting. So it's a bit unfortunate <laughs> for the 8, 9 p.m. Kiwi barbecues that we love. But yeah. I, I certainly notice for myself, if I eat a big meal shortly before bed, I don't feel good. I wake up feeling more sluggish. If you start to make the connections, you'll notice that you feel more sluggish in the morning. And again, what happens is the cascade effect of that is that the digestive process is the main process that the body's kind of struggling, working its way through in the night, and we don't get into the deeper levels of detox and healing. So if the meal is earlier, 
digested earlier, then we will actually um, start to get into those healing processes, metabolic processes. So if dinner's at five, six o'clock, which might seem a little bit strange to Kiwis, but if you have kids, eat with the kids. Yeah, totally. Not if you have kids. Yeah. Yeah, we've been trying to do that. What about, and so what about then moving through the seasons? So when the days are longer and do you kind of just flow with it and move more with daylight? Depends on what time you're going to bed though, because if we're still going to bed around 10, again, it's still... It's still we're wanting to have several hours of digestion before going to sleep. And still, again, you know, if you can't really – it's still better those the cycles sort of between 10 to 2, 2 to 6, 6 to 10, you know, to work with those regardless of the sun because, you know, you get to countries where the sun's up almost 24 hours a day. Yeah, I, wonder, I always sleep. wonder about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it'll it'll shift through seasons, but um, ultimately it's still – I mean, the, I think that one of the Nobel Peace Prizes um, was – awarded recently about um these circadian rhythms and the the rhythm of the sun and the effect on the body and things like that which is this wisdom that you know ayurveda has has talked about for a long time because these great masters were so in touch and aware with the interactions of everything in nature and their own nature and nature itself that they could detect the effect of and, and you can if you're, you know, in what we might call a higher state of consciousness or simply more aware, the ability to be aware of more things at one time and the interaction of all things, then you're going to naturally detect this. You you know, just like you eat something, you're like, mm, that didn't feel good. Imagine being able to make that kind of connection times a thousand or times a million. You would notice that the sun was doing this and this had an effect on you and wow. all of those things. So, God, yeah. That's amazing. That's a cool way to think about it. Yeah, because we had um, Sarah Wilson on, on on the podcast a long time ago and she, mm. she was um, talking about the different kind of Vedic personalities mm. that – that you could be like if you're more on the warmer side mm. or something like that, like you might gravitate towards warmer foods mm. or that sort of thing. So based on the Ayurvedic way of looking at mm. um, holistic health, could it be um, say you've got too too much of something in your system, like you're, you're too too hot or like too, too cold or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, is that like you get heartburn because you've got too much heat in your system? Exactly. Is that something yeah. Along those All lines? of those things. So it's about that each body being different as well. So again, it's one of the few systems of health that says every body is different. I love not, that. Yeah, not like all of this one way of eating or doing things suits everyone. It absolutely doesn't. And people, you know, in relationships, you two, they can see your constitutions are different. So what suits Matilda might not suit art. What Matilda digests well, art might not digest well and vice versa. And so um, it's about looking at all those things. But, yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, that's what I think as families and, and couples – it's a bit of a difficult one to, to deal with because you cook dinner and you just eat the same thing. Mm. Men, like I find that we eat eat the same thing and then sometimes I put on weight and he doesn't or, or like I feel really crappy after something and he doesn't. And we're still going to figure out how, how that works, you yeah. know, because it's quite hard when you spend, yeah. you know, 100% of your time together and you eat the same thing every day. You think, how, how do we tweak this to 
make it work for you and me. Yeah, it is quite easy to do. It's subtle mm. little shifts. You'd be surprising how small the shift is that would actually make it um, suitable for both of you. You know, generally yeah. a vata pacifying diet will work for most people. Most people have a vata imbalance, but yeah. yeah I mean, what, is it, what does that mean? That? Vata is one of those constitutions. So um, essentially the energies that, you know, make up your constitution that make you more prone to, you know, some people are very co- prone to extremity of hot and cold or um, they get really cold hands and feet and other people more running hot or uh you know all of these things work into your constitution essentially there's three main doshas um vata pitta and kapha and you'll be a a combination of probably two of those um when in balance you'll you know for example pitta out of balance it tends towards anger and irritation and heat, heat in the body, heat in the skin, eczema, you know, all of those things. Um, vata is more, uh, it's associated with movement and, you know, vata imbalance is very creative and adaptive and lively, um, but out of balance, you know, that tends towards anxiety, scatteredness, um, ungroundedness, things like that, you know, speaking very quickly, um, unable to be sit still as a classic me before learning to meditate. Um, so yeah, you can look into your, your constitution. I mean, I recommend seeing an Ayurvedic practitioner and getting it, it, it done in a professional way and they, they will ask the deeper questions. We're lucky to have a great Ayurvedic practitioner in New Zealand, which I recommend, um, which is Myra Lewin at Hale Pule, um, H-A-L-E-P-U-L-E, who I trained with. And she has recently moved back here from Hawaii. It's been a 20-year practitioner. She's very good. Um, So can only really recommend people that have had that level of experience and who have experienced myself, but she's very good. So if anyone's Mm. interested more in that, I would get in touch with them. God, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Like it's this whole new, well, I'm, Maybe not for you, but it's this whole new way of of seeing health and your body and how it all kind of interacts with your mind. It's just so fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I think we it. might we might make a trip up um, yeah. and visit and visit. What's that, Halle Pulley? Yeah, Halle Pulley. Yeah, Halle Pulley. Yeah, all right. I believe she's got a, a podcast as well because I tracked that down. How do we listen? It's yeah, quite cool. She has got a podcast, and I think she can do consults online, um, so people mm. are able to access that. Yeah. yeah. And then talking about uh, higher consciousness, so is this something that everybody has inside mm-hmm. them? They they can access this level of consciousness where they have such an amazing sense of awareness. Because I remember asking you mm-hmm. um, when I first met you, I said, like, what does high consciousness feel like? <laughs> you know, like, what is this? Like, do you just feel amazing all the time? And I remember you said that, well, it's, it's more there are subtler things like I don't care about what a lot of people care about or or mm. like like if something happened, you know, a couple of weeks ago and someone's really upset about it, I think, oh, why are you so upset about it? It was so long ago. And and I really loved that. It really struck a chord with me because mm. I was like, that's all I do is mm. is think about something weird I said a few years ago or like how, how I handled a situation seven years ago and I, you know, <laughs> think about it and be like, I could have said something way better than that. And it's, it's like this really bizarre level of caring of small insignificant insignificant things. And so is that how, how you would kind of describe it in a nutshell? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially... <laughs> You know, we uh, when I was thinking back, I was reflecting on what my experience was like because I have to kind of dial back to try and remember what it was like to be 
in yeah, that bet. body, you know, back then. And I spent so much time just like you thinking about, you know, I wasn't present when I was with people because in my mind, my mind was turning over, you know, either planning other things completely miles away from where I was or thinking about what they were thinking or, you know, did I say the right thing? Oh, I just said that. Or what are they going to ask me now? Just this constant mind chatter, you know, all the time. And then when I wasn't around people, there was a constant mind chatter about, you know, what happened an hour ago, a week ago, five years ago, like you said, you know, and it's that, um, that in itself uses up a lot of our own energy. So it's draining. Uh, and it's also cutting us off from the flow of life. We're not able to be present and engaged, um, in a natural, spontaneous way because, we're living in the past or speculating on the future. Um, <clears throat> I had no idea that that was possible for that to change. Certainly for me, I had been like, you know, quite an extreme version of that, as you can imagine from, you know, the little bit of the pricey of um, the background that I gave you of my, my life. So yes, I think it's possible for anyone to experience the changing of that. So what changes that? How does that unfold? Essentially, you know, I did a lot of mindful I tried mindfulness and I tried to, I was reading it Tolle and trying to kind of, you know, be present with the bubbles while I was doing the dishes and things like that. <laughs> and um, this was well before learning to meditate. And I just couldn't sustain it. And I would get frustrated with myself. I'm like, oh, I'm not present again. And it felt like this constant effort. And I was like getting frustrated that I couldn't do it. And um, you know, I, I just couldn't be present with what I was actually doing. So I was trying to be present at the same time. You know, it just felt very effort for it didn't something about it didn't f sit right with me I was like I can't do this you know and then I jacked it in. I was like oh, stuff that you know <laughs> too hard too hard basket yeah back to being stressed you know <laughs> um but certainly reading that knowledge you know had an effect on me but actually putting it into practice I found very hard and through the the evolution of my own experience what I realized was that I was trying to force myself into a state of consciousness that I wasn't actually experiencing and then that creates tension in the mind it can actually create some stress because forcing yourself to be anything that you aren't is going to be hard it's going to be a lot of effort and you can't maintain it and it actually splits the mind's focus into two things instead of being doing what you're doing you're also doing what you're doing and then trying to do this other thing which might be a very high lofty ideal of trying to be more present or more engaged but still it's it's splitting the mind a little bit um and this again was what uh my master's master Maharishi talked about was the the splitting of attention by trying to force something and nature really is is about allowing our own experience is about allowing more surrender more being with it rather than trying to make it different than it than it is. And so what I experienced was then when I started meditating and releasing stress, I just found that over time I naturally became more present without trying. Trying to be present is not being present. <laughs> You're not present, you know? And I looked back and thought, oh, now I get it. I get why I couldn't do it then because too much stress in the body. And so the main thing we need to do is release the stress, give the body that time to purify and release accumulated stress, daily incoming stress, but also accumulated stress that we've built up over a lifetime. And then that natural state of presence of 
just being mindful spontaneously reveals itself. It's already there. It's just covered over by a whole lot of stresses and habits of thinking that we need to step beyond that. That's part, partly why this practice, at least for me and what I see in my students is so powerful, is that we step beyond that active thinking layer. You know, There's a great saying that um, the problem cannot be solved at the level of consciousness at which it was created. So it's kind of like the existing mind trying to solve its existing problems doesn't really work as effectively that way. When we step beyond the mind into that, those deep, subtler layers of our own being, we're all, we all have that layer of being available mm. to us. Science even tells us that now, which is great um, <laughs> for the acquiring minds mm. that aren't yet having that experience. But we, we all are made of the same stuff, essentially. So when we dive in and have that experience, Many things happen in our state of consciousness and also in our brain. New new neuronal pathways are formed. And so we can actually start to respond and behave differently. But it's very hard for us to do that from the the maintaining the same existing state of consciousness. We need to be able to step beyond it and start to create difference through experiencing that deep inner fulfillment, which has its own effect, flow on, rejuvenating effect through the body, and then the corresponding effects in in the mind and the brain. Every time we're holding on to a stress, the body is storing all these stresses that we've accumulated, that we haven't given the body enough time to release. It, It uses neuronal mass to maintain the stresses. So of course, each stress that gets released, releases neuronal mass, mental energy, mental capacity on average we're using most people are using you know two percent of their brain power two percent it's it's you know and there is nothing in nature that hasn't been created for a function whether we're aware yet of what that function is is another is another question so then obviously we can access greater levels of mental functioning and capacity and it's shown in brain scans when you're meditating uh that you are accessing parts of the brain that are not currently being used very regularly and a phenomenon of hypercoherence between the left and right side of the brain. So the brain starts to become very coherent with high-level brain functioning. That's not happening when you're asleep Mm -hmm. in the same way. So even though we're getting rest when we're sleeping, we're not getting that same effect of increasing our mental capacity, our mental potential. So not only are we potentially living with stress and thinking all these thoughts about the past and the future and all of that, but we're not liberating ourselves to experience our full mental potential, uh, which is what, you know, you would see exhibited in, in great masters is that they, they have accessed that potential, the ability to know anything at any time can be pulled out of that state of consciousness. Uh, So that's where the Vedic knowledge comes from. Uh, It's not one person's philosophy that they've said, you know, this is it. It's actually downloading essentially the information from nature. And we all have that capacity. You know, you have that light bulb moment and you're like, yes, that's what that is. Or you make this amazing connection between two things and you almost get a feeling. It feels like light bulb moments are great descriptor for it because it feels like something goes off on you like bing, where does that come from? That mm. comes from the higher functioning, you know, where you suddenly remember where something is, you know, you've left it, you had no idea and you suddenly, bing, that's where it is. And you go straight there and it's there. As you start to <clears throat> progress into, you know, higher states of awareness, you immediately know where everything is. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I can just think where are the khakis, bing, I know where it is. Whereas I used to just be constantly wandering around trying to find things with just the level of the mind. When you create that space, 
regularly you're creating space and you're releasing stresses that are using up space on the hard drive so to speak then there's a lot more room for creative flow the ability to know things to remember things i mean we have scientific studies now that tell us you know meditation improves memory and intelligence and creativity and all of those things but this is why that is so Mm. the experience of that is that you feel generally very stable you feel that level of inner fulfillment so i found that things i noticed was that like i used to shop a lot you know (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing wrong with shopping it's Mm. fun but why are you doing it? You know, it's about the why, right? And so I used to do it out of boredom and stress and kind of this, I get this sort of feverishness of feeling like I had to get that thing. And then it would go in the wardrobe and I would barely even wear half the things that I bought. Um, And I found just spontaneously, it wasn't, I didn't even know I was doing that at the time. I thought shopping was good and a really good use of my time, (laughs) my income at the time. And then after meditating for a while, I found that I'd kind of go into shops and I'd just kind of wander back out like I didn't feel like I needed the need that driver wasn't there anymore I felt because I was having that experience of inner rising fulfillment feeling good on the inside not needing as much I could still buy something if I really loved it and I felt like yes I really want that but there's freedom there you're not bound by that thing now that thing is like you need that thing so you have to have it if I, if I didn't buy it I'd almost get a little bit feverish about like leaving it in the shop which that is not ultimate I feel freedom this is in it? my soul <laughs> yeah. I really do yeah this is yeah. just yeah this is the the perfect interview that I need at this time in my life mm, I think yeah we both need it <laughs> but replace yeah. shopping with you know, a glass of wine, blocks of block of chocolate, anything really, mm. you know, all those things that we're we're really only doing it. We don't innately really want that thing potentially. We're just trying to take the edge off something. Mm-hmm. Whatever that edge is, you know, I used to have need to have a glass of wine every night when I got home from work. And I would say to take the edge off, you know. And I found that I was just doing it less because the edge wasn't there. I'd meditate when I got home and then I might have even been thinking just before the meditation that I wanted a drink straight afterwards. Mm. (laughs) And then afterwards I was like, oh, I don't feel like that now. What is that shift? It's diving into your higher self, having that experience. Mm. It's, It's imprinted on your awareness and then you spontaneously find things change. Now, sometimes people get freaked out about that. They're like, well... What if I just want to give up all my possessions and move to the Himalayas, man? And, you know, I want to still be able to drink and be social and whatever it is. And it's not that, you know, you're going to, you know, completely give up everything and move away and become a hermit. I mean, I'm sure that's possible, but it's unlikely (laughs) for most people unless that's what you really are meant to be. Um, But it's more that you start to... The, the things that are binding you, not so bound by it. You don't have the edge that needs to be taken off. Then it gives you freedom to choose. Like, yes, I want to have this really beautiful glass of wine with dinner. I'm going to really enjoy enjoy it versus having inhaled three quarters of a bottle before noticing that, yeah. <laughs> oh, we drank mm-hmm. a little bit more than we were planning, you know, for example. Um, or, you know, buying things that you don't then use and you don't really want. Um, you know, just having a bit more ability to self-regulate from a deeper place I would say mm. yeah because it's as you say it's that quick high that just falls off again like you like if you're still in that kind of bound by shopping or wine or chocolate or 
whatever it is. Like if I buy something and I feel really great and I think, yeah, oh, fantastic, <laughs> you know, I feel fantastic. And then sometimes even by the time I've gotten home, yeah, I'm already kind of, I've just forgotten about it, you know, and, and I think like, oh God, this is not, and like that's not bringing me any form of, of, of happiness. It's like giving me a quick high, but it's not really contributing to anything meaningful in the long term, you know? It's, and, um, yeah, and sometimes it's causing detriment because mm. you do the thing and then either, either there's a negative effect on the body or on your bank balance. Yeah, you think, and, oh, God, it was a bit too know, much. Yeah, or I didn't yeah. need it. I'm not even enjoying that thing. Then you feel guilty that you have it. And sometimes it's that disappointment as well, like, oh, I should feel better about this. Why don't mm. I? You know, there's yeah. sort of peak yeah, back to those kind of peak experiences that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're um, quite passionate about teaching this form of um, meditation to mums, especially. Um, yeah. Because I was talking to you just before we started this this podcast because I said that my meditation has kind of fallen off a little bit because cause I've been struggling because we only have so so long of naps during the day mm. that I think, okay, cool, I'm going to do my um, meditation during his naps. But but I found that I've gone back into that um, mindset of, oh, but I've got to do this job and like I should probably clean the house for like I should do my emails, I should do and do this, and then I run out of time to meditate every day. Mm. But talking to you has kind of made me realize the importance of the meditation before all of that stuff, because like a clean house, it doesn't matter. All, all of the stuff just doesn't matter. And I find that I'm a lot more irritable. I'm a lot more mm. um, thinking of different things. Like even sometimes when I'm playing with Milo and I'm thinking about, oh, I should probably do this. I should do that. I should do that. And, and it kind of makes me a bit sad because I think mm-hmm. like, no, I want to focus on this. I want to focus on this and enjoying this moment. But as you say, that's not being present. If you're thinking about being present and trying to be present in this like beautiful moment, yeah. you think, why, why am I thinking about all of these other things that need to be done? It just, it doesn't matter. So I, I think that's, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but I'm just basically trying to say that this is the the perfect opportunity for for me personally to be reminded about the importance of it and why you do it, you know? Yeah, I mean, talking about mums and um, meditating and things like that, f- my first recommendation is come and learn before you get pregnant or while you're pregnant, if you mm. can, if you yet to have children. It's a great time to learn because generally people find it easier if they've already established that practice to carry on with it afterwards. And also, of course, the benefits for the baby are so profound when you're meditating, that baby is bathing in all the bliss chemistry. So the body will actually produce the bliss chemicals during meditation. And the more that you produce those over time, eventually it becomes your baseline chemistry. So you literally, your blood chemistry is changing when you meditate, just like we can measure, you know, if we have a fear response, there's a trigger a cascade of chemicals associated with that. And so there are chemicals associated with feelings of bliss that are triggered by the experience of that deep, serene, and a contented place within our awareness. So the baby is bathing in that bliss chemicals, and then that's going to that's going to impact them for the rest of their life, that nine months of what their incubation was like. Um, If the mother is, you know, triggering a lot of stress chemistry in the body that is passed through um, the placental barrier into the baby. Now, there'll be mothers that have, um, we sit as women, you know, and particularly mothers, the guilt complex is very easy to set up. So don't (laughs) start feeling guilty if that's you, you know, but um, just so that people are aware there's something that they can do. You know, we so quick to take, um, pregnancy vitamins and things like that. But, um, you know, 
meditation is really something that, uh, you know, I've seen so many students and mums um, just able to be closer to the type of parent that they want to be through the ability of having this tool and topping up their own cup. You know, um, we we're talking about this just before we mm. started the podcast with that mums will, you know, they're just giving in every direction other than themselves. It's, a, you know, it's such a beautiful act of devotion and it's fathers as well but often for women because they just tend to and again we're starting to see shifts in this but tend to be um, primary caregiver at home while um, dad's working and things like that and so and their bodies are involved you know (laughs) the breastfeeding men can't do that yet yeah (laughs) Uh, and so they are first starts with devoting their body to the baby as soon as they become pregnant then the the body starts responding the baby is literally driving that vehicle and then through breastfeeding and everything so that you know the classic one is mom's like i can't even go to the bathroom by myself the baby attached me and it's all too much i just need some time to myself you know and so meditation gives them this ability to top up again and refill their own cup, which is so important. You know, I would always argue that that is the most important thing. It's actually the most important thing anyone can do is take control of their state of consciousness and really clean up the system, you know, because that is the conglomerate effect of all the states of consciousness of the individual experience of each person is what makes up the totality of the collective of humanity and so if we were all to do that um, and take that what is we could say it's radical responsibility or just responsibility for our own experience and then what we bring into the world then we would have a very different world and mothers in particular are under so much pressure and demand physically the the hormonal cascade after giving birth is not to be underestimated you know and then they've got a new baby and then they're getting hardly any sleep and suddenly life is vastly different you can mentally prepare for it all you like but the experience of it is very different and then of course they just the adaptation energy just isn't there and then the effect on the child and children are you know they're our next generation they're the leaders that are coming through so whatever can be done to make their experience optimal um you know I'm pretty passionate about that and mums often come and learn they're like they say oh I just want to be a better parent and I was like well your experience is also important yes there is the flow on effect of that but you know the vacuuming the house cleaning all of that stuff is definitely secondary to your experience which then flows on through your the experience your children have what they what they experience is not so much even what you do and say it's how they feel around you you can be saying all these nice things but then you've got this bubbling fear anxiety anger inside you they feel that they're super sensitive super open energetically so cleaning that stuff up and giving ourselves the chance to feel better and then that we need some kind of reboot to be able to come back fresh to giving again you know we can't just give all day long it's going to deplete the mother at the very least and so it's important that and it's a very amazing thing as children grow up and they see their parents meditating and they realize that they can that self-care is important you know, the ultimate self-care is meditation because it fundamentally changes your state of awareness, it, which then triggers its way through the body and your health and all the other areas of life. So if we're kind of really stressed and then just occasionally having like a bath with 
some, you know, bath Lavender oil or something. something. <laughs> it's not changing the things at the fundamental level. Mm. Um, and I love baths and all of those things. But so where does that, where does that self-care come from? It comes from taking care of the self, of the inner self, which mm. flows through our entire experience. And so for mums, they particularly need that. So I'm so passionate about mums, you know, making that a priority for themselves. And we talk about when I teach people how to fit it in. Lots of mums will meditate while they're breastfeeding even. So they're up in the night and they're sitting there and they've got hours sometimes, you know, and they might even just be scrolling on their phone because <laughs> there's nothing else to do and the baby's like feeding, feeding, feeding. They can be meditating at that time. Mm. Then the baby is being nourished on this beautiful energetic level as well as um, the breast milk and the breast milk is infused with bliss chemistry. And so all these, you know, more subtle effects that are occurring so when the baby is down, that's the time for mum's eyes to be down too. She also needs a rest. And because we might be tempted to sleep at that time, but sleep is poorer rest than meditation because meditation is resting the body two to five times deeper than sleep. If you're already an established meditator, you'll be within seconds meditating. Very optimal use of, say, 20 minutes of that time. And then whatever comes, you've got a bit more time after that then, you know, Clean the house, but clean the house from a relaxed place. <laughs> Feeling good while cleaning mm-hmm. the house, you know, these things. Uh, so yeah. just it's a shift in perspective. And, you know, for for men as well, for anyone really, it's that idea that, you know, that time for yourself is not as important as other things. You know, if you were to make a meeting with someone else, you know, at 3 p.m., you wouldn't miss that. You would definitely not miss it. But if it's for you, oh, well, that doesn't matter so much, you know. What is that saying? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, what what about um you mentioned kids before. Mm. How do you teach many kids? When would you get kids involved with it? Yes, we start teaching kids from about 4. And they learn essentially up until about nine or 10 depending on the child. Um they learn an eyes open practice where they come and get a mantra, uh, which for them we would call it a word of wisdom or a magic thinking word. (laughs) So cute. It's very cute. (laughs) And they come and they learn that and they think it on the inside whenever they feel like it. So it's firstly, you know, our tradition is that the child must be inquiring and interested in meditation themselves. It can't be something that the parent has enforced for whatever good reasons, on the child. (laughs) Uh, So they need to first want to do it themselves, and then it's up to them whenever they want to do it. And so we will say to the parent, you know, you might just check in and say, oh, do you remember what your magic thinking word is or your word of wisdom? And the child will be like, oh, yes, I remember it. And it sort of triggers them to be able to go Mm. and whenever they feel like it do it inside so they might think it you know when they're someone's being mean at school or they're feeling sick or sad I had um one student uh her daughter learned she was about seven I believe at the time and she was doing orienteering at school and she got lost on the orienteering course and she sat down and started thinking her magic thinking word inside and then found her way out um which was one of the great stories (laughs) how sweet that's very cute but it sort of teaches them it introduces them to meditation without it being imposed by any in any kind of structure it's not like another thing of their parents telling them to do yes yeah where they might start to reject it um and then they come to it of their own accord. If they grow up seeing their parents meditate, they're going to start asking about it. It's as normal to them as brushing their teeth. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, we brush our teeth. And then mummy meditates. And mummy's much nicer after meditation. <laughs> and she stopped buying yeah. so many clothes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, sometimes they're like, Mummy, I think it's time for you to meditate now. Yeah. It's highly annoying, right. but yeah, okay. accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so they they can start in that way. Once they get to an age where they can sit for a period of time, and it will depend on the child, you know, sometimes girls might be more ready to sit still for nine or ten minutes if they're nine, if they're ten, ten minutes, so the number of minutes of their age. Um, they'll sit and they'll come and learn the eyes closed practice. So then as they progress, they can progress up in the minutes and round about 18 and start meditating for 20 minutes um, twice a day, which is mm-hmm. uh, the recommended practice for Vedic meditation. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Oh, mm. can't wait to get little Milo involved. <laughs> it's yeah. all magic thinking word. So cute. It's very cute. Yeah. I love teaching kids. And it brings this little, sometimes they start really giggling because it triggers this bliss inside them and they, mm. they find it very giggly yeah um or it brings on this little light in their face so it does have a, an amazing effect it's very yeah. cool yeah well that's we, what i felt we both had that didn't we us yeah yeah we both did our course separately with you georgia and uh but each of us had a moment where we just like spontaneously started laughing <laughs> and i was like holding it in because i didn't want to because you were meditating at the same time georgia and yeah. i didn't want to you know disrupt you but um yeah, yeah, it was I so funny. So I remember um, coming home and I was like, ah, it was so embarrassing. Like, I was <laughs> meditating with Georgia and then all of a sudden I just laughed like really loud. And I was like, sorry, <laughs> where that came from? But it's amazing that the things that come out during these meditations, like sometimes um, I told you that, that like I would have these um, meditations that were really quite difficult and I mm-hmm. sort of felt like I wanted to move or get up and I was like watching the time and I was feeling a bit anxious um, which would feel vastly different from maybe the day before and mm. and I remember asking you about it and you said that that's built up anxiety and stress that's leaving your body mm. so, so you kind of feel it as it leaves and yeah. so more anxiety during meditation means less anxiety out, right? Absolutely. I mean, the reason why we meditate, I mean, obviously, partly it's to establish that layer of being, but primarily it's stress release, which does the former anyway. Mm. <laughs> so it's that's the point of it, is to release stress. So if we're not releasing stress during meditation, then we're not going to start to feel different outside of meditation. So one of the big things that we talk about on the course is the stress release process, how it's experienced, what we might feel as we're meditating and why so that we have a full understanding of it because you guys will have had enough meditations by now to know that meditation can be vastly different you know you might feel you know totally blissed out and have kind of amazing experiences sometime and then another time you might have an experience like that where you felt a little bit anxious during meditation i mean we're sitting there resting deeply so meditation can't make you stressed so what is that coming out it's the old anxiety and i think again a lot of people that start meditating without understanding the full process they give up very quickly because they don't understand the full mechanics of it and that's why you know over four sessions um we spend quite a lot of time explaining the full process so that you have that knowledge to be able to go oh this is what this is and then we'll understand our practice will remain consistent and then that's when the benefits start to get realized through that consistent regular practice Mm. yeah i definitely found and i still do find that my meditations are all so varied each day day to day and sometimes they're really blissful and that's really nice and pleasant and i really like that and i do still kind of hope that i'm going to get one of those every time (laughs) i do but but, but probably more often than not it is a my mind is uh sort of running and i'm having i do have lots of different thoughts but i now 
you know, kind of welcome that because that is, I understand, mm. you know, that that is my body um, relieving itself of stress. And I think that's probably one of the reasons I like the Vedic um, uh, technique of meditation because I actually feel like I'm actually doing something and there's something is working. Mm. Um, whereas other forms of meditation, I kind of, yeah, would sit there and I, I'm not sure really what, what the benefit is for me. Um, but yeah, I, I also, I love that it's effortless and I don't, <laughs> I also love that it's not uncomfortable to sit. You oh, know, like one of the first things, really you, said, one of the first things yeah. you said to me was like, yeah, just sit, relax, you know, rest your back on that couch. Oh, I, I, can, was like, I can rest you, my back. You mean I don't have to sit here cross-legged? Yeah. Um, and for me, that's actually really nice. Well, there's a reason for that, which is that, you know, if we have to maintain effort in the body position, firstly, I, you know, I had a student last week that was like, you know, I learned this practice where I had to sit upright, very upright. And there are practices like that. And there's reasons again, why they do it that way. But in the Vedic tradition, um, Particularly in the West, our backs haven't been strengthened to the point where that is comfortable and accessible. So then all the time, <laughs> you're just thinking, my back sore. Um, but also in you know that layer, the active thinking layer, the doing layer is at the opposite to the layer of being. So the more that we're doing, the less we're able to sink down into being, even if we're doing something in the body positioning that's using me it's requiring effort from me to maintain that body position, then I'm less likely to sink into those deeper, subtler states, which awaken us to um, that fulfillment inside, but also rapidly release stress. And it's such a good point that you make about feeling something's happening. So what I'll often say to you, you'll remember this is, well, how did you feel after the meditation? And you'll be like, oh, well, I felt super relaxed. My body feels you know, free of tension. I feel calm and quite clear like things have sharpened up and so we judge the effects of meditation after the fact not during during is like you know sometimes the turbo um, washing machine as stress is being released and then we we're liberated to feel better outside of meditation and that's the point of it and I think for me when I was doing um <clears throat> listening to guided voices and things, I would feel relaxed during, but I didn't notice that it was really changing me much outside of that. There wasn't a, a tangible difference in my experience outside of that. And sometimes people will come and say, well, I did this, you know, guided meditation. I fe it felt really nice while I was listening. I was like, yeah, because you're not releasing stress. You're not at a deep enough rest state. So while, and apps and things are great, great, great starting places, but the thing with listening to an app or having headphones in is that we're still attached to technology. And so the body is processing the techno technology. It can't get into a deep rest state because it's still got to deal with the, the techno technological impact and the voice so that our awareness is being kept at that active thinking layer because there's a voice, there's sensory input. And this is why, you know, <laughs> we don't see any masters meditating with headphones on. <laughs> um, they didn't have headphones, to be fair, but I still I still maintain they wouldn't have used them yeah. um, because, you know, the real experience happens when we pull away from sensory engagement, which simply means closing the eyes mm. and... Um, it's very easy to do that. It, you can easily progress onto that. It's actually easier, um, very, very easy because of that effortless nature of it. But it's good to understand as well the impact of still, it's a bit of a crutch to need, you know, then you don't have the phone or there's no Wi-Fi, you can't get the app to listen to the, you know, mm -hmm. versus having that practice where you could meditate anywhere, anywhere. You know, the yeah. doctor says, oh, I'm running half an hour late. You're like, great, I'll have a meditation oh, now. Yeah. Planes, you know, Plane, all yeah, of Yeah, planes things. back when we could fly. Um, yeah. When we, no, yeah, I, I love meditating on planes. And 
and that is one big thing I love about it too, yeah, is that I don't need anything. I can yeah. just, yeah, just sit. Mm. <laughs> and there's so few opportunities now or the opportunities that we create to move away from technology and artificial lighting or phones. Just the, the 20 minutes with the eyes away from the phone in yeah. itself is good. Yeah. <laughs> benefit, you know. Definitely. Yeah. Well, it seems like um, babies and dogs are, are, are slowly waking up. <laughs> so we might have to um, finish it there. But um, before we go, we have to ask you our final question. Oh. And if you could have oh, – Buster, can you just – Stop scratching your face on the carpet. Ruffling. Um, if you could have three foods and three foods only for the rest of your life, what would they be? Are these like <laughs> – <laughs> are these like specific are they meals or are they like one type of food to be honest it changes every it time it changes every time but I like to think it's a specific like one item food like an avocado like an, like an avocado rather <laughs> yeah. than uh, pizza but we've had both so yeah. you just do do whatever you like basically I think avocado saying. would be up there obviously that was the first thing that sprung to mind mm-hmm. chocolate yeah you know I think life's a little bit sadder without chocolate, maybe. I think so, too. <laughs> and you can um, mix them together and have chocolate yeah, mousse. I don't think my, my food combining is going to be very good. <laughs> um, and what would the third one be? I think it sounds a bit sad. Hot milk. I love it. Oh, really? Oh, that's, yeah. Okay, that's I wasn't that's expecting first. that yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. Hot milk. It's very settling, yeah. you know. I think it, it's so calming. Isn't it might it? balance out the yeah, yeah. Because I think like, you can make a hot chocolate with that too. Yeah, That'd exactly. Be delicious. Yeah, yeah. There's like something about hot milk or like milk and honey. Something about milk that is just really calming. And I wonder if it's just like a like a being born thing from mm. like yeah, yeah, from from like breastfeeding and stuff. Is that hot milk is just it's got such a calming effect. Mm. Like even as an adult, it just kind of brings you back to like. Those early days. I used to have hot milk every night. Mum used to make us hot Mm. milk before bed. Mm. Mm. The bedtime milk. It's very settling for the system. So it's Mm. highly prized in Ayurveda for its nourishing, settling effect. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it needs to be taken hot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Now, if people want to find out more about you and your practice, how do they do so? Yeah, um, I recommend coming along to an intro talk. I run free introductory talks every week. Um, there are some, there's usually one on Zoom once a week or once every two weeks for people that don't live in Auckland. I'm based in Westmere in Auckland. Uh, or you can come along in person and it's a great way to learn a bit more about, we can go into the deeper mechanics of a little bit deeper than we went today about Vedic meditation and what happens on the course and how you learn and all of those things. Um, and then, you know, if they want to learn at some point, they can. Uh, and it's a prerequisite for learning that you've attended an intro, but no reason to learn if you just come along oh, to find out God. more. Um, no, or jump on the website, which is gvmeditation.com. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. and, and it's um, GV Meditation on Instagram too, right? It is. Yeah. Yes. Cool. And thank you so much for having me. It's just been such a joy to catch up with you again and hear how your practice is going. And, you know, I think you guys are really the embodiment of people that are trying to ha- really have that intention to live in a conscious way and to give back. And it sort of shows by through a lot of the things that you do. So uh, it's really nice to be able to get to meet you both and teach you and then see how things are going down the track. So oh, thank you. Well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're we're so grateful to you for, for teaching us this stuff. It's, it's been pretty incredible, hasn't it? Mm, life changing. Mm. Yep. 
Oh, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Cool chat. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message and leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.